This is the Inner Voice Audio Experience, and I'm your host, Travis McKenzie. Endurance athletes spend a lot of time in their own heads, and their own self-talk can either drive them towards their goals or crush them in an instant. We often focus on mastering the body, but these battles play out in the mind. I host inspiring athletes and innovators from across the endurance sports industry and explore the trials and tribulations that often play out well before race day and in their personal lives. You will recognize the names, but you won't have heard their stories told like this before. This week's episode is with two-time Canadian Olympian Martha McCabe, who joins me on the Inner Voice audio experience. Martha and I look back on her journey from the McCabe Olympics, competing as a four-year-old against her three older siblings at the family cottage, to captaining the Canadian swim team at the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. Since retiring from competition, Martha has founded and is leading Head to Head, a company created to empower the next generation to reach their full potential with confidence while providing tangible support and purpose to Canadian Olympians through their transition to life after sport. Martha and I discuss how the tools she developed as an athlete has translated into her business life and some tips and tricks that us weekend warriors can implement to make sure we're living our best lives as well. Today's episode of the Inner Voice Audio Experience is presented by our friends at iCore Labs. iCore is a clean, natural source of recovery-enhancing, full-spectrum hemp extract. They design their products with athletes in mind, and their goal is to protect your body from the stresses of training, improve recovery from intense efforts, and maintain a positive mental state. They believe that you can experience meaningful improvements in your well-being through small lifestyle changes, which is why they focus on the benefits of sleep, decreasing inflammation, and increasing mindfulness. They have a special offer exclusive to Inner Voice listeners, which I'll share with you later in the show. For now, enjoy the conversation between Martha and I. I'm so excited to be here with Martha McCabe, two-time Canadian Olympian, swimmer, 200-meter breaststroke was her event. Martha, how are you? I'm good. Super happy to be here to chat with you today. Now, I just learned that you're in sunny Florida, which I'm a little bit jealous about. I'm here in Boston. The, the weather is nice, but it's definitely not that warm. Um, whereabouts are you in Florida right now? I'm in Fort Myers, Florida. So any chance I get to kind of soak up the sun rays or escape the winter at all, I'll take. So I'm doing that right now. Brilliant. And then are you still swimming are you still training what does your kind of athletic life look like i would say i'm not training at all but i absolutely love being active and playing sports so every day i'm doing something um that could be going into the gym um doing a little circuit outside sometimes it includes going for a swim um, much shorter than what i used to and less frequency for sure <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm always staying active. I absolutely love it. So big part of my life still. That's great. And then um, you mentioned you're not swimming as much. How much would you have been training or swimming when you were in the peak of your career? 
So a typical day, probably in the peak of my career, would include two in-pool sessions that lasted about two hours. And then additionally, a one to two hour dry land session in the middle of the day, which would include either going to the gym and lifting weights or some sort of body weight circuit like that. Um, and then on top of that, you know, just little exercises and things like that to make, keep the body fine tuned, whether, whether it was physio or, um, massage, all that kind of stuff. So it kind of became a full-time thing, but that gives you a little bit of a sense. Yeah, I'm sure there's, you know, there's a lot more to it than just the physical side of it. Um, one thing that I have read uh, in my research was about the McCabe Olympics. You have three older siblings and you grew up competing and racing against them. Tell us what that was like for you as a kid competing with your older siblings. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was extremely fortunate growing up. Um, you know, I have three older siblings, two sisters and a brother. And we would go up to our cottage, my parents had a cottage kind of a couple hours out of Toronto, which is where we grew up. Uh, and we'd spend a lot of our summers up there, which basically just meant you're outside for the whole summer, just playing around and swimming and running around and all that good stuff. So my parents, I guess, were always, you know, Olympic fans and just big sports fans themselves. So because there is four of us kids, um, and a few neighboring families around, they thought it'd be fun to run a little mini Olympics and, and they called it the McCabe Olympics. Um, so basically what it was, was uh, like a day of just a whole bunch of different events, sandcastle building, swimming, running, you know, all sorts of fun things where we would just compete against each other. And when I did this, I was about like four years old, right? So I was pretty small, but it just probably sparked a little um, idea in my head, even at that age. And the concept of, you know, really hard to talk to someone or compete with someone, I think was just there for me from the get go. Um, and when I think back of, on like growing up and this is in the cave Olympics and that kind of thing, you know, we had like a little opening ceremonies. We sang the Canadian anthem at those little um, in the cave Olympics. We had little like pretend medal ceremonies and stuff like that. So I think, it introduced the idea that sport was just so fun and competing was so fun. And um, for me, it was just always trying to chase my siblings and, and keep up with them and do what they were doing um, was a huge advantage for me growing up and definitely played a big role in what came for me later in life. That's amazing. I could, uh, I can just imagine. Um, we did similar things when we were kids as well, growing up in Australia, um, Australia, obviously a big sporting heritage and, competing against neighborhood kids and, you know, riding your bike as fast as you can down the street or running up the hill or doing what, what have you, I think teaches that element of play, um, but also that competitiveness. And one thing I've noticed in talking to a lot of the athletes that I do get to talk to is that the best of the best really have this competitive drive that you can't really teach. Do you think that's the case in, in yourself? Did you have this competitive drive that just pushed you right from the start or do you think it was something that was developed over time? I don't know if I know the answer to that, but if I think back on when I was growing up, I absolutely loved playing sports and challenging myself. And, and I guess that kind of competitive edge was kind of just innate. And 
I really think that having older siblings pushed that kind of on me even more because I didn't want to miss out on what they were experiencing. So I was just trying really hard to keep up so I could, you know, climb to the top of the ladder or do the monkey bars like they were. So I was always pushing myself that extra little bit, just kind of keep up and be around and be with them. So I wasn't missing out on something. Um, So I think that played a really big role in kind of building that competitive edge for me as a young kid. Yeah, it's really good. And I can identify it in my daughter now as well. She's two years old and the older kids on the playground who are able to do things, she looks at them and, you know, the thing that she couldn't do last week, she's now doing and it kind of just is this progression for her. So I could imagine what that would have been of like for you just wanting to keep up and be with your older siblings as well, which is really cool. I now have like six nieces and nephews that are all my siblings have had kids. And I, I too, just like you explained, I see that exact same thing with some of the younger of my, you know, nieces and nephews looking at the older ones and thinking, okay, if they just did that, I can figure out a way to do that. And so sometimes they achieve those little milestones quicker because they're kind of, they're seeing it and they're being pushed to do it almost immediately. Yeah, it's absolutely really cool to see. Skip a couple of steps. You competed in the McCabe Olympics and then you became a swimmer and you were shooting for the Olympics and as is everything in life, nothing comes without a challenge. And you missed out on the 2008 Olympics, which should have been or would have been your first appearance. Tell me about what that experience was like for you missing out. I would say missing out on the 2008 Olympics was uh, one of the biggest events that changed my life. I was pretty young at the time. I was 18 or 19 years old. I had at that point moved out across the country to Vancouver where I, you know, I didn't have any friends or family out there because I was going to put everything I possibly could into qualifying for the Olympics. And the whole year I had the Olympic rings taped to the ceiling above my bed. And I was making every single decision to kind of line myself up for success at those Olympic trials. And I was going best times in the lead up. Everything was kind of falling into place. And I was, so confident and sure that I was going to be on that Olympic team. And when I went out to those Olympic trials, they're in Montreal and I had my whole family come to watch and, you know, everyone knew what my goal was. And, and I, I can specifically remember even walking out for that Olympic trials race and still behind the blocks feeling so good about um, what was about to happen. And when I finished that race and swam to the wall, I, I, I placed third, meaning I did not qualify for the Olympics. And for me at that time, it was extremely devastating. I just, I hadn't even really considered the fact that I might not make it. And I just kind of felt like everything I'd done in the past year was a big waste. And Um, you know, doubting everything about my ability in sport and probably even beyond. And it was a bit of a shock to me. And I remember when I saw kind of my family and friends after that race, just breaking down because not only did I, you know, kind of realize I really didn't qualify for the team, but I also almost felt like I'd let them down because, you know, they'd supported me so well over the past year and the lead ups to that moment. Um, So it was definitely really tough, but looking back now without that experience, I don't think I would have ever achieved what I did in the years to follow after that. I learned so much about myself, about how to enjoy the process, about how to take those baby steps and, 
you know, and enjoy every single day working towards these goals. And, um, it was like a truly defining moment for me where, which really pushed me to self-reflect a lot more and, and helped me majorly in the long run. Would it be fair to say that you learned not to take the result as what you're gaining from that experience? It's more about enjoying the process and the success really comes from putting in the work day to day rather than relying on a result for success or failure. Yes, I think it pushed me towards uh, learning that a little bit. I would say I didn't fully learn that until another four years later, but it at least kind of opened my eyes to that slightly for sure. And you talked about wanting to quit and wanting to give up and throw away that dream after that result. Were there any instances where that came up later in your career as well, where you just thought, I, this is too much, I can't keep going? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's time. There's times when I was swimming, like I, I told you a little bit about kind of what a typical day was. And when you're training that hard, you're breaking down your body, you're absolutely exhausted. So you're literally at wit's end almost every single day. And you're just pushing and pushing. So you can be fragile, I think, mentally. And there's definitely times when, you know, even as an athlete who's training in like beautiful Hawaii, and you're there on a training camp, you're pushing so hard every single day that there's, there's so many times that you have this, these moments of doubt that come into your mind, like, is this really worth it? Am I really going to be able to achieve what I want? I think self doubt is like a natural human instinct. And even the best of the best have those moments. And for me, it was coming up with tactics and tools to ensure that when those moments came up, I was able to kind of get myself back on track and maybe feel them for a bit, but pull myself back on to, okay, do I want to be here? And if so, why? And how am I going to make this the best I possibly can? And what were some of those tactics? Was it, uh, did you have mantras? Was it um, looking back on training logs? What, what were those tactics that helped you get through those moments? I had journaling for sure was one so whether it was yeah recording workouts i was doing or i used to actually make this little kind of graph which had different components of my life in it so personally you know in my, my mood how was it on a scale of one to five or one to ten how was i eating how was i sleeping did i feel stressed or anxious at all um how did the physical workout go did i feel positive or negative and I would just kind of keep track of those. Um, and just by simply writing down numbers every single day, that alone just kept me aware, right? And the more aware I was, the more I was able to kind of just track if I ever did go off course. So that was a big one. I also um, just leaned on teammates and coaches. And for me, like my mom was basically my sports psychologist for a lot of my um, swim career and it was just simply me calling her and venting and she wouldn't even do much she would just kind of listen and for me that's all I really needed um, so that was a big one and just kind of getting those things off my chest and then feeling good and being able to focus on the next step uh, those are some of those main tactics I would say and did you ever have anyone you really looked up to or wanted to beat or were super competitive with with were there any of your teammates in particular that played that role for you 
Absolutely. I was extremely fortunate um, because when I moved out to Vancouver, one of the big reasons I actually moved out there was because there was a Canadian uh, named Anna Mae Pierce who was swimming my event. And pretty much every time she got in the water to race the 200 meter breaststroke, she was breaking the Canadian record. And so when I moved out to train alongside her and her coach, which became my coach, Joseph Nagy, um, I was incredibly competitive with her. And it started out as, I think, almost me, um, you know, almost having like a, a little shield up because I felt like we couldn't be friends and competitors at the same time. Um, but as I you know, like grew up a little bit and learned more about life and sport, um, I really opened up to working with her instead of against her, I think. Um, but we pushed each other like crazy every single day. And um, she went on to, to break the world record um, multiple times. And for me to be in those races with her just a couple lanes over was huge for my confidence and for, you know, my success later as well. So we had um, a lot of battles in training, which I think really made us both a lot better. That's awesome. And then was there anyone from other countries, were there any other athletes in particular that uh, you wanted to beat or that were someone who you were close to over the years? Is there anyone that stands out? There were a lot of athletes from other countries that I would race summer upon summer and always wanted to beat for sure. When I was competing in the 200 meter breaststroke and both the Olympics I went to, an American swimmer, Rebecca Stoney, was kind of dominating our event. So she was always on my radar, as were a couple others. There was no um, nobody that I guess I had a really, really close relationship with from other countries that I, you know, followed too closely in that regard. I was pretty focused on what I was doing, and I think having anime be you know my training partner was really big for me to kind of just stay focused on what she was doing and how I could use her as a as as help for myself too yeah I guess having the world's best uh in your corner right next to you day to day probably helps not worry about what anyone else Mm -hmm. is doing um you mentioned that it took another four years for you to realize that it really is about the process and not so much about the result can you tell me about how you learned that lesson in 2012, four years later? Mm-hmm. I, so after 2008, I started getting better and better again. Um, it actually, before the 2008 games, when I was in Canada racing, I ended up swimming um, the second fastest time a Canadian had ever swam in the 200 meter breaststroke. So just next to anime, who was competing at those Olympics. So from there, I I just continued to improve going into the 2012 Games. I won a world championship medal in 2011, which was a huge milestone for me, being on the podium at an international competition one year out from the Games. Still, for me, I was just, my eyes were on an Olympic medal. And completely, honestly, it was on an Olympic gold medal, even though Rebecca Sony was such a, huge dominating force in our event I still really believed that I could win an Olympic gold medal and that's what drove me every single day and when I 
swam my race at the Olympics. I placed fifth and was pretty surprised, I think, by the top three times as, as a result. They were faster than I thought they would be. And after that race, and I think in the few weeks after the Olympics and months after the Olympics, I just started to really question and have, I think, negative feelings and doubt about, you know, had I spent my time the way I should have. And I think I started thinking, you know, was all of this worth it just to come fifth and kind of having um, negative feelings towards swimming in a way. And looking back at that now and thinking about that now, to me, is like incredibly sad. I think it's very natural for a lot of athletes to feel that way after a big competition, especially um, whether they get the medal or not. I think we often question, you know, was that all really worth it? And um, I think the more time I spent, and I think especially the year after that, as I continued to train and slowly got back into training, I started to realize that I actually was really enjoying every single day. And it was about every single day. It wasn't about that end result. And it took me, I think, a time after the Olympics to, to feel, I think, a bit, you know, negative and have those questions come up and really dig into them for me to understand that it was so much more about the journey than the end result. And I carried that through all the way to the 2016 games as well. That's really cool to hear. And I think that it's a good lesson for up and coming athletes. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit more about what you're up to now. But I want to talk about the lead into that 2016 Olympics. You were uh, suffering from injuries, you had to modify your training quite a lot. And you probably in the back of your mind, weren't sure that you would get back to your best. Um, did understanding that it is about the journey and the process help you through those moments of doubt when you weren't sure if the 2016 Olympics were going to happen for you? Yes, I would not have been able to make it through those next four years if I wasn't, you know, so grateful and appreciative and focused on the day to day and that journey along the way. That's how I made it four more years. I was, I wasn't thinking about, um, you know, going to the Rio Olympics in, three years before it. I was just thinking about what I was doing that day. Of course I had goals for the end of the season, but it was focusing on that step-by-step process. And so when I did get injured, I got a stress fracture to the distal part of my clavicle, so my shoulder, and I wasn't able to lift my arm above like 90 degrees for, you know, two months or so. And it took three or probably up to six months for it to fully kind of come around and you be able to train properly. And it was challenging, but at the same time, I was so focused on every single day and just the small baby steps and, you know, working with my coaches and physios and being really appreciative and grateful for th- those opportunities that it actually ended up being a lot easier than um, I think if I was too focused on that end result, like I was going into London. It's great that you were able to recognize that in yourself. How did they diagnose a stress fracture in your clavicle? Um, I read that and I was amazed that that was a thing because obviously, you know, coming from a triathlon background and running background, a lot of lower limb injuries um, with stress fractures and things like that, but I'd never heard of it happening in, in someone's shoulder. Was that simply overuse? How did that happen for you? We never actually really probably dealt to the bottom of that. Um 
I think a few things that we discussed, I had changed coaches that year. And so my program was changed completely. I'm typically much more of like an endurance type athlete. The training I was doing was, you know, um, just like a lot of mileage, a lot of body weight exercises, that kind of thing. And when I switched coaches, the training switched to a much higher intensity and a really big focus on uh, like lifting in the gym. Mm-hmm. And I have a pretty small uh, like frame. And I think working with some of the other girls and teammates that I have, these were much stronger athletes than I am and p- powerful athletes versus my body type. And so I think that change and work that I was doing was just probably not um, the best for my body. That's kind of what we, you know, tied it to. Um, after that, I definitely did a lot less of like the heavy lifting overhead and that kind of stuff. For me, it's more about doing some of those body weight exercises and stuff like that. Now, you get through the injury, you work on um, getting back to competition, you qualify for the 2016 Olympics, and you were named the captain for the Olympic swim team. Tell me what that was like for you leading that team into the Olympics. That's a huge honor. Um, You know, I'd been on the national team for a fair amount of years at that point, and I'd learned so much from, you know, missing the Olympic team and then from going to the Olympics and missing a medal and from winning a world championship medal. I I had learned so many things in my career. So to be named a team captain was just an absolute honor. I, I don't know if there's um, words that can really explain it, but the thing about being a, a team captain of an Olympic team is that you're leading a group of pretty exceptional leaders. So there's not too much that you need to be doing. <laughs> The rest of the team is, you know, they're they're amazing and the accomplishments they've already achieved are incredible. So for me being team captain, it, it didn't change much, I would say, but I just tried my best to share some of the experiences I had and really encourage the other veterans on the team to be sharing their experiences with the rookies on our Olympic team. That year, like in Rio 2016, we had some phenomenal young swimmers on the team. So just guiding them and making sure that they knew kind of a couple things to expect in the athlete village or stuff like that. That's kind of what my focus was, but more than anything, like I say, like leading an Olympic team is, is I think probably one of the easier roles to be playing because these people are so equipped to be their own leaders. If that makes sense. Absolutely. What was the difference for you between those two Olympics? So, Obviously, the leadership, taking on that leadership role is one, but was there anything distinctive that you can identify about your two Olympic experiences? There are so many differences. I don't even know how to begin, but a couple that stand out. I knew that Rio was my final competition. I was ready to retire. I was, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And my mind was starting to get excited about things outside of swimming and Um, And that was not the case at all in London. In London, it was 100% focus on winning an Olympic medal and and, uh, like picturing that Olympic gold medal, you know, so that was a big difference. And I think even being able to just soak in the experience a little bit more in, in Rio in 2016, I was better able to do that because my focus was more about this whole journey and understanding that this is all kind of a big process and 
soaking up, you know, the, the teammates, my teammates swimming well, or soaking up just the athlete village. And just, I think being a little bit more aware of where I was and what I was doing and just being so grateful for it. That was more my approach in Rio. And I think that just came with experience and with having been to a games. With that said, my performance in Rio was significantly worse than my performance in London. So even now looking back, it's, it's really tough to say what that balance is because I think you need that laser focus to perform. Um, but you want to make sure that you're enjoying it too, because at the end of the day, I truly believe it is about that process and enjoying that journey. Um, so it's, it's tough to say uh, how to really do it right. But those are kind of a little bit, that's a little bit on the two experiences. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think that that was going to be one of my questions. Did you know that you were finishing um, at those games uh, and leading on to what you're doing now, you founded an organization called Head to Head. Did you know that you were going to do Head to Head after the Olympics or were you still not sure of what that next step would be for you? So after the 2016 Rio Olympic trials, I started planning uh, a cross-country drive where I was going to drive from Victoria, British Columbia, all the way to St. John's, Newfoundland, which is a really long trip. (laughs) Um, I think we drove about, uh, I want to say like almost 10,000 kilometers in total. When I qualified for the Olympics, my plan was, I'm going to do this big cross country tour where I go out and speak to kids, schools, varsity teams, corporate groups, as many people as I can to share kind of my story and all the lessons I learned along the way and help others, um, use some of the tools that I learned to manage their their own challenges, whether it's in sport or out. And so immediately after the Rio games, I had this, basically this tour booked for myself. I had, you know, called all these different schools and my plan after the games was to go back to the West coast and kind of get my stuff together and begin this drive. So I had this tour planned, which was a 60 day tour of um, 55 different, um, workshops and speaking engagements laid out for me right after the games. I think that was the beginning of head to head. So for me, that was a way for me to transition from being an athlete to my life after. It was being able to get out there, share my story, stay connected. And I got such positive feedback from that experience. Um, you know, coaches telling me that, hey, like I've been telling my athlete to do this for six years and you just came in and said the exact same thing and all of a sudden they've, they're doing it. And so <laughs> I think like hearing that sometimes and seeing that from parents, from kids, from corporate groups, from all sorts of people, it was really eye-opening to me. And um, not only did it feel amazing for me and in, in, in a time that can be very challenging for a lot of athletes, that athlete, that transition moment um, after an Olympics, especially it also was, you know, seemed seem to have such positive impact on all, all these people that I was working with. So that was kind of the, the, the beginning of the company that I run now called Head to Head, which, which, yeah, we basically pair up Olympians and national team athletes with either schools or corporate groups or sports clubs so that they can kind of build those relationships, um, you know, go in, visit the kids, get to know them over five or 10 visits and, and build those long-lasting relationships to help these kids 
um, and different people build resilience for their own lives. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I'm, I'm going to read the mission of Head to Head. So empower the next generation to reach their full potential with confidence while providing tangible support and purpose to Canadian Olympians through their transition to life after sport. Uh, what a beautiful mission. And you mentioned in a, a couple of ways how that shows up. In reality, what does that look like for you? How does running head to head look on a day to day basis? On a day-to-day basis for me, it, it can be chaotic. I mean, it is still a startup. Um, <laughs> so there's lots of moving pieces. Um, basically, you know, I, I wake up every day because I'm extremely driven to help uh, people. And I'm especially drawn towards, I think, the mental resilience and mental health aspect of people because I've seen so many fellow athletes and just young kids even struggle with things like anxiety or depression and even if they're not uh, like as severe as those you know um, mental illnesses but maybe just having moments of those like anxious or nervousness and that kind of thing I've seen so much of that firsthand that I wake up every day to try and help people um, get the tools that that can help them manage those things so that they can live a happier and, and better life so that is what drives me in terms of a day to day though. Um, you know, it's all over the place. I'm managing, we have had about 30 Olympians either running an event with us or working as a mentor, um, in a year long program that we run. Um, so there, so I'm always working with the Olympians to try and help provide them with resources to really build out a a solid mentorship program. I'm also, trying to get more schools on board or more clubs on board, get summer camps involved. I'm trying to work with corporate groups to find, you know, partners who want to be helping schools in the community or helping Olympians. Um, so I'm always out speaking. I myself do some speaking engagements. It's kind of a huge array of things that I'm doing on a day to day, but it's something that I think it excites me and I absolutely love it. So I feel pretty lucky. You mentioned startup life and you mentioned you know the the day-to-day and the chaos what do you i know they're both very different but what do you think is harder being an athlete or running a business it's a really interesting question because i think in my mind there's a ceiling on hard if you're working as hard as you possibly can then that's kind of that's it and so i don't see one as being more challenging than the other they're they're just completely different as an athlete you are just absolutely grinding and physically exhausted and mentally drained, but you can, you can take a two hour nap in the middle of the day to to help yourself recover. Um, But as an entrepreneur, you're just trying to deal with all these, you know, curveballs that are being thrown your way or people, uh, you know, challenging partners or customers or employees or whatever it is. Um, and you have to figure out ways to be better and, and manage all those types of adversity that come your way. So I don't know if that really answers your question. I think my my answer really is like it's it's more about how hard you push yourself. And for me, I've I feel like I've pushed myself so far um, equally hard in both roles that I've been in. Yeah, it, d- it definitely does answer. And I think that um, one of the follow ups I have on that is. You talked about laser focus as an athlete, and I think my experience with some 
exceptional business people and entrepreneurs is that they have that same laser focus on their business and growing their business um, and potentially even a natural talent to see further than those day-to-day challenges and the firefighting that comes up as being a business leader. Do you think that the qualities that you learned as an athlete have successfully been able to translate into your business life? Over the past two years, I can't believe how much everything I learned in swimming and everything I was doing while I was swimming how closely related that is to everything I'm doing today as, as I work through building a business. It's dealing with those day-to-day challenges and being an entrepreneur and being an athlete, you're on a roller coaster ride. You know, you have amazing days where everything feels like it's going so well. And then, you, you know, one thing comes back and you have a bad practice or, you know, a huge deal that you're about to sign on doesn't go through. Um, and you're down in the dumps questioning like everything again. And um, for me, I need that in my life when it's too kind of, I think, like comfortable and secure and I know what's coming next. I just, that feels, um, I find that really challenging. Whereas when I have that roller coaster ride, it keeps me on my toes and it, it gets me super excited about what, what's possible. And then when I'm down in the dumps, it's like, okay, how can I get myself out of this and how can I get back on track? So um, it's, it's been a huge surprise that the skills that I've learned in swimming, um, how much they relate to business. And I think I'm always trying to get that message across to other athletes, because when you finish your sport, sometimes you feel kind of lost and almost useless and like, you don't know anything. And what I've learned in the past two years is that you actually know so much more than you can even recognize. And if you can just figure out how to apply those you're going to be so far ahead of the curve um and it's pretty amazing yeah i think that's really insightful and as you were talking earlier i was thinking about those things that you did when potentially things weren't going your way so you're able to capture information on your mood and how you're eating and how you're sleeping and all of those small details and I think they're all translatable. Those type of things are translatable to business life as well. If you're having a bad day, you can look back and say, okay, like in the scheme of things, what is a bad day? Um, but also like, okay, you know, how's my sleep been? Have I been able to work out? Have I been able to take some downtime with my family and friends? And things like that that, that you've used in, in uh, athletic practice that I'm sure also would be relevant in business practice. Yeah, I think you nailed it there. Like. I I keep those things going. Um, Even if I'm not, you know, so closely tracking as I was in sport, it's kind of become a habit for me because of all the time I spent in sport to check in on those things all the time. And when I do start to feel, you know, like either negative or um, just like things aren't, aren't going so well, I don't feel super excited or something. I stop and I ask myself those questions exactly like you said. And, for me, it's about ensuring that I'm taking time to, you know, work out for sure. I need that. Um, spend time outside, spend time with family and friends. And even if it's an hour here or there or like 20 minute breaks, like for me, those are what um, help me get back to that um, kind of, I guess, positive side of building a business and, and keep me happy and well, I guess. Yeah, that's brilliant. And the other thing that I'm always interested in knowing is how 
um, your competitiveness shows up in your life now that you're not swimming or you're not racing or competing? How does that show up in your day-to-day life? Yeah, I, I always ask myself this question too, because I'm not sure. Like, I think obviously running a business, I don't necessarily see that I'm competing against, you know, certain companies or individuals, but there's always a challenge in front of me. You know, if it's trying to sign on a new client or find a partner to to help us out with something or those to me are little challenges where I think some of my competitive energy kind of goes towards. And then I don't know, but you know, I, I, like I mentioned earlier, like I still work out and I play hockey and, you know, it's just house league and recreational stuff. But um, I think, I think there's a little bit of competitiveness that comes with those things. You know, when I'm doing a little sprint triathlon, I want to beat the girl in front of me, like just cause for fun. Right. So I think there's still like pieces of my life where that competitiveness is, is around and it comes out. I think for me, it's, it's more probably just being competitive with myself at this point versus where it used to be much more against, you know, other countries and that kind of thing. So it's still there a little bit for sure, but maybe not as, as aggressively as it was. And, and I'm sure it will come back more so, but as I'm somewhat fresh off retirement, maybe it's a little bit faded right now. I'm not sure. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting for me to hear because I really truly believe in that, you know, hundreds of interviews I've done with athletes uh, at an elite level, that there is this innate competitive spirit that will never, ever go away. And it's something that needs to be harnessed. And whether it is through you know, competing with yourself on a daily basis or, um, you know, sometimes it turns up and people playing golf or watching or playing Mario Kart or what what have you, there's always mm-hmm. a little bit of a like, I'm going to beat you just because I want to beat you. Yeah, I think I think I have that for sure in some capacity, no doubt. Now, I was just actually thinking, obviously, you mentioned Rebecca Sony earlier, and she is working with athletes in a similar vein to what you are with her company in the US. Have you seen what Rebecca and uh, Caroline Burkle are up to? I actually haven't really. I Somebody sent me like a, a link or something like that. And I saw it and I couldn't believe it felt like it was very, very, very similar to what we're doing. I didn't really look into it further. So I don't really know enough about it to to say, but I I knew that she was doing something in the mentorship area, connecting athletes with, I think, other athletes. Yeah, it was just interesting when you mentioned her name and I um, connected with uh, with Caro uh, through my time at Lululemon. So I've been kind of watching their journey and what they're doing with their company as well and, and notice some similarities with with what you're doing so i th- just thought it was a little bit interesting that uh you're kind of working on the same positive message obviously and and um and supporting olympians and supporting people uh, who want to be better in their lives um with that in mind what is the 10-year vision for martha mccabe where do you see yourself 10 years from now i'm not sure again that i know the answer to that i in 10 years, I hope I feel the way I do now, which is um, I really do like what I do every single day. And I feel extremely fortunate to be spending my time on something that I love. So I think for me, that means in 10 years, I hope that whether it's head to head or some other company or whatever it is, I I find joy in really 
helping provide tools for people to help make their lives better. I'm really a people person in terms of I want to help others and that's what drives me and that's why I wake up in the morning and that's what excites me. So I think in 10 years from now, as long as I'm doing that and happy with how I'm spending my day to day, that to me is success. Um, It's not necessarily about money and fame and all these big, huge things. It's more about just helping people and making sure that I'm, I'm happy and healthy every single day along, along the way. So it might be vague, but no, I think it's, I think it's a good way to, good way to view the future. And I, I think there's so much emphasis put on success, quote unquote, that, um, it gets lost in the fact that really, if you're happy doing whatever you're doing on a day-to-day basis, then that's real success to me. Um, as far as I'm concerned, another thing that I'm interested to know is you're obviously connected to other Olympians. You're connected to young athletes. You're connected to corporate, um, or people in the corporate world. What is the advice that you give most often to people when you're doing speeches or you're connecting with them or you're sharing your story? I actually think the advice I give them is really similar to what you just said. It's, you know, find what you absolutely love, what gets you excited and, and what makes you feel like you have a really clear purpose and stick to that. Don't get caught up in, you know, what somebody else thinks is success or what society tells you is success. Because if that's what you're basing success off of, if you get there and, and uh, if, and when you do get there and it's not really what something that makes you happy, it's going to, be just uh, feel like a waste, I think. And like that journey wasn't what you wanted it to be. So I think the biggest message I get, try and get across to people is ask yourself why you do what you do and keep digging deeper on your purpose and what makes you happy and what drives you and, and find that thing that makes you happy every single day. And it doesn't mean there's not going to be huge challenges and ups and downs along the way. A hundred percent there is, but you need to build ways to deal with those challenges that come at you. And one of the best ways to do that is to be driven by this clear purpose and and long-term vision for yourself and something that you actually really love. So I think that's the biggest piece of advice. And I think it really works for kids and for corporate Canada. Like if you're a young kid and you're trying to figure out what it is you like, you need to try a whole bunch of different things. You have to, maybe it's art or dance or sport or music, whatever it is. Um, and same if you're working in a big company or medium company, like you need to find out, is this something that you actually love? Or are you doing this for another reason? And I think just dig deep on yourself and self-reflect and find out your kind of why and your purpose. And if you can do that, then you will really, I think, be happier and in my opinion, be a success. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think you said finding that thing that you love and finding your purpose will actually help you get through those hard times. So when things are difficult and you're faced with adversity, knowing that you're doing something that you truly believe in and you truly love and is closely connected to your purpose, I think will help you get through anything that comes your way. Yeah, totally agree. One other thing that I am really interested in in hearing from you about is what you think weekend warriors, people in the corporate world, people who 
um, may not have that competitive spirit or the Olympic level talent can do on a day-to-day basis to get the best out of themselves. We talked about, you know, finding your purpose or doing things that you really enjoy, but not everyone has the opportunity or it might be a little bit stuck in getting there. What can those type of people do just to really get the best out of themselves? A couple things. Uh, and I think maybe some of these are obvious, but they, and maybe not, but uh, I think for me, taking care of yourself is so, so important because sometimes people overlook that component and whether it's eating right, taking 20 minutes every single day to, to do a bit of exercise, those things are so big in helping you to be the best version of yourself. And I feel sometimes that people don't understand just how powerful those simple things can be. And it goes beyond, of course, eating and, and physical activities and things like sleeping and you know, taking time to just focus on like the now and just relax. And these things are so, so important. Taking care of your mind is, it has to be the number one thing. When you do those things, the other challenges are more manageable. You can get through them and really the best version of yourself comes out. So I think those are the ones that kind of stand out to me. And like a highlight for me is something that somebody told me when I retired from sport was, that like a workout can be 20 minutes. It doesn't need to be a two hour thing. Uh, if you have, you literally can take 20 minutes out of your day, go do something. And for some people that might be a walk for some, it's a, an intense circuit. It depends on who you are, but simply that is a step towards uh, bringing out the best version of yourself. I believe. I agree 100%. And I, uh, used to scoff at doing a one hour ride. I wouldn't even bother you. Like it's not even worth getting dressed to go out. But now mm-hmm. my one hour rides are the greatest, well, not the greatest part of my day, but they're a very important part of my day where I can either decompress, I can either go out and have some fantastic ideas, I can just be in the sun and be in nature. But it's such an important part of who I am. And now, you know, looking back on days where I haven't, I can notice a difference in productivity and mood and all of those type of things. So it's, you know, it is important and and for athletes as well, who, who may have been at a level like yourself that, you know, you have to shift your focus and know that you don't have to train for three or four hours a day to feel like you're doing something. So I think it's fantastic. One other interesting thing that I wanted to talk to you about is in my research, I found out that you and I are both born on August 4th. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty cool. And I wanted to know if you knew any other famous people or any other people that were born on August 4th. And I have a list that I'm going to share with you. But if you do you know anyone else who might have had the same birthday as us? I know so many people with this birthday. <laughs> Two of my former teammates, one a varsity swimmer and one on the national team, both had this birthday. Um, I had probably two or three people growing up, um, family, friends that had the birthday. I believe um, there were like the queen mother or something also yeah. has this birthday. I, <laughs> I think there's like quite a few. What's yeah. your list like? Uh, all right. So here goes. So I, I, actually, I was the same. I, I know quite a few people, same birthday. I think we all kind of like gravitate towards each other. And I don't know if it's <laughs> if other people with the same birthday have the same feeling. But I definitely have this feeling with people who are born on August 4th. But here's the list uh, in no particular order here. So Barack Obama, uh, Louis Armstrong, the Queen Mother, uh, Meghan Markle, 
Louis Vuitton and Billy Bob Thornton were the the six that I found, and there was a whole laundry list of more people, but I thought those were, those were noteworthy enough for us to talk about. That's awesome, yeah. I do remember hearing about Barack Obama having this birthday. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's awesome. Um, now, where can people find you? You're doing fantastic work with Head to Head. Um, personally, professionally, where can people uh, get in touch and, and find out more about what you're up to? The best would be our website, which is headtohead.ca. On there, there's my contact information, which is just mccabe at headtohead.ca. And then I think on our social channels, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at, at underscore headtohead or personally on both at marthmcc. Um, and I'm really open to having conversations with people, whether it's just to you know discuss an idea or see what we can do if we work together or um, just have a conversation. I'm, I'm always open to that. So definitely encourage people to check out our different channels and, and please reach out for sure. Fantastic. Um, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you making the time and um, I definitely look forward to staying in touch. I think you're, what you're doing with Head to Head is really important um, and I, I look forward to talking to you more about how we can help and how we can support with everything that you're doing. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to following the journey of Martha McCabe for the next 10 years and uh, and staying in touch. So thank you so much for your time, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Florida. Yeah, thanks, Travis. Really enjoyed chatting with you too. Thank you again to Martha McCabe for joining me on this episode of the Inner Voice Audio Experience. As always, we can't thank our sponsors enough, and this episode is brought to you by iCore Labs. iCore really nerds out on the science, so they make sure that they can provide the most bioavailable product that you can get. Their mission is to provide the highest quality, most effective full-spectrum hemp extract products available, allowing you to have the best day possible. And I'm excited to share it with you. Head to iCoreLabs.com and use the code INNERVOICE on checkout for 15% off each and every order. I've been using iCore for about three months now and I noticed such a difference in my recovery and my sleep, so I think it will be a benefit to you as well. If you enjoyed today's show, I'd love if you can share some feedback. Send me a note, leave a review, leave a rating. I'd love to hear from our listeners. Also, if you listen to this on your mobile device, take a screenshot, put it in an Instagram story, tag in a voice. I'd love to see where and who are listening to the show. That's all for now. All the best. Until next time, I'm Travis McKenzie, and this is the Inner Voice Audio Experience.